As Caitlin said, we're going to cover some ground. It's beginning. We're in a bit of narrative now. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago as we were working through the Gospel of John, if you're new with us, we work through books of the Bible primarily, and so we have been in the Gospel of John, and if you're unfamiliar with the Gospel of John, it is it is uh, stories of Jesus and John's account of Jesus. Uh, however, he spends the first uh, several verses doing a prologue, really unpacking for us who this Jesus is that has stepped into the world. And so, uh, but intermixed in this prologue about Jesus, and, and really as a part of the prologue about Jesus, we have this other character, this other John, uh, the Baptist or the baptizer. That is mixed in. And so a few weeks ago, when we first heard about John, we also dropped down and looked at John's baptism. And so we looked at the verses immediately preceding this. So it's been a few weeks. But uh, here we're going to see that this is the next day. And if you're following, I don't know, you didn't catch when it was the first day, but this is the beginning of a four day uh, narrative that is, is very specific in the launch of Jesus. And so the first day was whenever, uh, you know, the previous day was whenever John was baptizing. He was baptizing people out in the wilderness. So if you don't know about John the Baptist or the baptizer, he was, an, he was a bit of an odd fella. He wore strange clothes. He ate bugs and honey. Uh, and he was out in the wilderness declaring a, a, a message of, of repentance and saying that the, the coming of the Lord is here. Right Now, the people of Israel have been waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Lord to come for generations now. And John is sent to say, hey, he's coming. Repent and be baptized and ready yourself for this coming. And people were responding. There was power in John's message because God was using him. And people were coming out and being baptized as a sign of renewal, as a sign of being ready for this um, new work that God was going to do through the Messiah. They really uh, had no way to know. The, well, they, there was a lot of prophecies, but the, the fullness of what Jesus was going to do had not yet been revealed to them. But they're coming in response to that. And so in response to all the crowds... Some of the religious leaders sent some messengers to say, John, who are you? Are you the Messiah? What are you doing? What is this message? And John had made it clear, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm a voice in the wilderness pointing to the one who is coming. Okay? And they said, no, no, you really got to give us an answer because our boss has got to know, and we can't go back and tell him that you're just a voice. And he's like, no, no, that's really why I'm here. I'm just here to tell you about the one who's coming, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Okay, so that was the first day. Now, the next day is where we find ourselves in the narrative, verse 20, 29. And here John says, the next, well, the writer John says, the next day he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we're going to talk about uh, this thing called Christianity. Okay, so maybe you're here today for the first time. Maybe you're here because you had a family member being baptized and you wanted to come watch. Maybe you're here because your life's a mess and you're trying to see if maybe Jesus can help you out. See if this Jesus thing that you've heard about from your friends and family is, is, is legit. See if maybe a little bit of, you know, church could get your life back on track. And, and here's what I want you to know. There's, a, there's kind of this big narrative. You grew up in America, you grew up in Bible Belt culture, like we know about Christianity, we know that it's a thing that people do, we know that people get baptized, we know that people, you know, are Christians, and some of us think, man, okay, that's just, the people have chosen to be church folk, right, and you kind of look at it as, as something that people, well, that's good for them, they, they've chosen to be, you know, good people, church folk, they're going to church now, whatever, and we kind of think of it as this lifestyle choice deal, and, and there's this, you know, air around, okay, what is Christianity? What isn't it? What, what, what should I expect from it? Maybe, and then a lot of people stay away from church because they don't think they could be church folk. 
And maybe, frankly, they don't want to be church folk because some of y'all are really bad witnesses and you're boring and you're mean. Okay? So maybe that's what they've seen and they're not sure about that. But if you find yourself here like wondering about this Christianity, here's what it is. It's people saying, Jesus has changed everything for me. Jesus has saved me. I am a sinner in need of salvation. I can do nothing for my own salvation. I, I am lost and helpless without him. And Jesus has accepted me. Jesus has saved me. We're headed toward, not at a quick pace, but we're headed toward John 3.16. And the whole world knows this passage, right? We know, not, not the whole world, but all of America, all of our little world, we know about John 3.16. It's held up in football games and, you know, random places around the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't, ha- wouldn't perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Right? This is, that we know that, right? We're aware of this thing called Christianity. We're aware of this Savior named Jesus, but what does it mean? What does it actually mean? This is, again, I I told you, the whole service, the baptisms, the lion and the lamb, right, Um, that we got saved, that this is amazing grace. All of this is, is pointing us to, it's not just singing for the sake of it, it's all pointing us to the truth of who Jesus is. And as we're gonna see next week, his disciples encounter him and everything changes for them from that moment on. And, and so today, what we wanna do is make sure it's really clear who Jesus is, what he's come to do so that you can encounter him and he can change everything for you. Amen? So here's, here's John's baptizing. He's just had this interaction whenever, with the religious leaders saying, who are you? Are you, the, are you the Messiah? Are you claiming to be him? Are you the spirit of Elijah? What's going on? And John says, no, no, but there's one coming. The next day, it says, he sees Jesus coming toward him, and he makes this declaration. He says, behold. Now, this is a significant word that uh, you probably don't use a ton in your vocabulary, but uh, for, for them, for this, this writing, is, it's, it's a strong emphasis on what's about to follow. Like, he wants us to really take a, a good look, not just like glance up, but actually take in what is to follow. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, who is going to take away the sin of the world. He's, and then he's going to go on, verse 30, to say, this is him. This, the one that I said is, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. The one that I said is coming after me. John is saying, it's him. This, like right there, in the flesh, is him. So before, John didn't even know himself that he was talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to say that in a moment. I didn't know until this thing happened, until God revealed it to him. What is this thing? Well, he says, <clears throat> uh, the, the Spirit of God descended on him like from heaven like a dove, verse 32, and it remained on him. All of this is, is confirming and fulfilling prophecy. And John is basically saying, listen, I was sent to tell Israel. I was sent to reveal to Israel that their Savior is here. He says, I'm merely being obedient. I showed up in the wilderness. I'm baptizing with water so that Israel can see their Savior. My baptism is all about revealing to Israel their Savior, the people of God. When you hear Israel, that's the people of God. John, the author of the gospel, is going to delineate. He'll say the Jews, meaning the religious people who are resisting God. But when he says Israel, he's talking about the people of God. He's talking about the people who are are genuinely ready to receive what God is doing. And so he says, my job is to come baptize people so that... The real Savior, the Messiah, can be known. God is doing this work. And so he's putting this before him and saying, that's him. Before he was just talking about somebody will come. There will be one coming. 
He's coming after me. Don't get excited about me. Get excited about who's coming after me. And now John says, he's here. He lays eyes on the flesh of the word, the logos, indwelled into human flesh. This creator, this all-encompassing. The Logos, if you've been here with us, represents for the Greek the, the ultimate reality, the thing that holds all together. The Logos for the Jew represents the power of God. The, the Logos, John has said, is the creator, is the sustainer, is over all things. It was him in the beginning. He was God and he was with God and, and now he's taken on flesh. He is still God, but now he's God in the flesh. And John says, and that's him. That's him. That, that man in the flesh, there he is. And, and he calls him something specific, and it freaks commentaries out. I was really kind of almost amused by all of the commentators this week trying to figure out what reference exactly John was saying um, the Lamb of God is referring to. Well, it's not this because it didn't have to. It couldn't be the Passover specifically. It could be a little bit, but it's not this because it wasn't always a lamb, and it couldn't be this offering because that wasn't a lamb. And, and, God, and the, the Passover lamb didn't carry the sins away. That was the, you know, that was the, the goat of expiation, expiation that carried them off. And so they get all confused. Well, here's the deal. All that John has been doing has been wrapping up for us all of redemptive history, pointing us back to not just one part of God and what he's been doing, but all that God has been doing. And he's saying, all that God has been doing has found its yes and amen and has wrapped himself in Jesus and is making himself known to the world. So we don't have to limit ourselves to one specific uh, reference. But here's what he's saying. The Lamb of God is here. The Lamb of God for the Jews is, is very clear that it has implications to a lot of different things. They have the Passover Lamb. If you don't know that story, that's the story of God getting his children out of, his, out of Egypt. Right? There was the, the, uh, a plague there was 10 plagues, but the 10th and final one was the plague of death, right? God says, I'm going to come and I'll kill the firstborn in every home in Egypt. But if you, my people, will slaughter a lamb, put the blood of that lamb over your doorpost, then when the death angel comes, the final plague, the plague of death, my angel will pass over your home and the lamb will have died in the place of your firstborn and you will be spared. So, the people of Israel, they, they go through this ritual. They put, the lamp, they put the blood over their doorpost. God passes over them. He slaughters the firstborn in all of Egypt, and he rescues his people out of Egypt through that, that terrible plague of death, that terrible punishment of death. Be careful. You start judging God. Remember that the wages of sin is death. All of the world deserves death. You and I deserve death because we're sinners. So God judges Egypt, shows grace and mercy to his people. And from that moment on, they observed the Passover meal. They would do this every year. They would take a lamb, perfect lamb, not a beat up lamb, not a throwaway lamb, but a perfect lamb. And they would slaughter it and they would have this meal and they would remember that God has saved them, that the death angel has passed over them. So this is a ritual. They have gone through so many other rituals where they're slaughtering animals, where they're bringing to God these sin offerings. Why? Because God says your sin has a cost. Your sin has a cost, and that cost is death. There has to be death or sin can't be forgiven. Uh, I think it's Hebrews 10.4 says, without the, or maybe it's 9.29. Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. You read the Old Testament, it's a bloody book. It's a really, really, really bloody book. 
The people of God would have been used to seeing blood. Even as they came to worship services like this, it would be bearing animals to slaughter. They were used to seeing blood. God wanted them to see blood. You say, well, that's gross. And God says, yes, it is. And so is your sin. That is how God sees our sin. And he wants us to feel the weight of our stomach turning when we see the blood of an animal that that we, we had to slaughter, that the priest had to slaughter to get forgiveness. God wants us to go, yeah, absolutely, you should feel that. That visceral reaction in you is good and right. Why? Because that's, you're seeing death happen. God says that's the cost of your sin. So the people of God were familiar with this, this, this ritual of sacrifice, forgiveness of sin, but it was always temporary. It always had to be repeated. Each year, each new festival, each new ritual had to be repeated because the blood of the animals was only sufficient to gain some forgiveness to God, to gain some provision from God to look over their sins. But they, they were told, one day, one day I'm going to send a Savior. Isaiah chapter 53. We're just going we're gonna to look at this together. I've got it on the screen, but I want you to hear this is the context which John is drawing his people back to. His readers would have been familiar with this prophecy from Isaiah. They know that this is what God has prophesied to do. I'm not sure they're, they're real clear on, on what that would look like fully, but this is what God has told them. One day there will be a Savior who comes, and this is what he's going to look like. Verse, we'll start in, in verse 4. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Again, this is hundreds of years before Jesus. And, and, there, and he's, the writer's saying, People aren't going to see Jesus rightly. We're going to see him as a man of sorrows that is bearing this, this beating and this death. But Isaiah is saying it will actually be not for his own sin, but for ours. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Have that lamb in mind. Have this, this idea of having to slaughter an animal to, to, to bring about the forgiveness of sins in mind. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Not Jesus. He didn't earn this by going astray, right? But all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on us all of our iniquities. All of, no, he says he's laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what is coming. This is what John is is saying is now here in Jesus. He goes on to say he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a what? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent and he opened not his mouth. It's so fascinating that at the very first appearance of Jesus in this story, in this gospel of John, the first time that he is there physically. He's been talked about. He's been talked about that who he was before, and now he's entered in the world. But the first time we see him enter the scene, the name that is given to him is the name that will come to full fruition at the very end of his life as the Passover lamb, as this very lamb that, that Isaiah is talking about, that Jesus didn't lose his life as though he went into a battle and he lost because he wasn't strong enough. Jesus didn't lose his life just because he expired here on earth. He lost his life the way that a lamb loses his life. He's slaughtered. He's given as an offering. He's given as the the, the very thing that would bring forgiveness for his people. This is who this Savior, this Messiah 
would be, he opened not his mouth like a lamb being led to the slaughter. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they have made his grave with the wicked. Not only was he, this is the gospel. You hear it? He, he came and he died in our place. And then what? He was buried where we should have been buried. They made his grave with the wicked. This is foretelling what would happen to Jesus. And with a rich man in his death. We know that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man who gave Jesus his, his tomb for the body to be buried in. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Goodness, church, you and I are the ones that deserve to be crushed. You know that? And it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. That's the gospel wrapped up in one verse there. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. This is the fullness of what God is going to do in Jesus, but it comes not freely for Jesus. It's out of the anguish of Jesus' soul. Jesus, we know, was, was praying so hard that his tears and his sweat turned to blood because he says, man, this cup that I'm about to drink, this, this wrath, this punishment on the cross is, is going to be more than I want to bear. And yet it's through his anguish that the wrath of God is satisfied. And his knowledge shall be the righteous one, my servant. And through that, many can be accounted righteous. This is what we looked at last week, that through Jesus we receive grace upon grace because of what he has done. And he shall bear their iniquities. This, th these animals, right, whenever they were slaughtered, they, they, would, they would lay hands on them and they would confess their sins of the people or of their individual personal sins on the animal as, as a transferring of those sins onto that animal and then that animal would be slaughtered instead of them. This was the ritual with which John is drawing all of these people's attention, laser-focused right to Jesus as the Lamb of God. This is the ritual that would be there. He shall bear their iniquities. The sins of people will be laid upon Jesus, and he shall bear our iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and, it, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So this, this is what John is saying has arrived. This is, is what he's pulling in all of the sacrificial elements of, of what God had had his people going through. Jesus is, Hebrews will say, the sacrifice that is once and for all. No more will it have to be repeated. No more. I don't know if you noticed, none of us brought, did y'all bring your animals this morning and your knives? No, why? Because Jesus has ended those sacrifices. He has, has accomplished it once and for all. He is the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. This is the incredible news of the gospel is that no longer do you have to place your sins onto an animal because your sins have been placed onto Jesus and he was slaughtered in our place. And he says that he takes away the sins of the world. Now, this, this is, you know, kind of usual news for us, but for them, 
this is, this is what now? He takes away the sins of, of who now? Because they're expecting a Savior to come and save the people of Israel, the Jewish people, but he's going to take away the, the what now? And so this is saying, yeah, the sins of the world. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for the entire world. Now, we know that from a few verses ago, not everybody gets saved. It's not a universalism. It's not God has punished Jesus, so now everybody's off the hook. We have to receive him through faith. We have to repent of our sins and receive this good news of, of Christ in order to have our sins forgiven. But guess what? It's not just about the Jews. It's not just about the religious people. It's for the entire world. This is the good news of the gospel, that it's, he's taken away the sins of the world. This is incredible incredible statements from John that he wants us to, to see. And, and John has a particular narrative that he wants us to enter into because unlike the other gospel writers, he doesn't record the actual baptism of Jesus, but this would be the scene in which it would happen. Okay, this is where John was baptizing in the Jordan River and people were coming uh, to be baptized. And by the way, uh, if y'all know uh, Tom Hampton that, that serves our church in so many quiet ways behind the scenes, one of the ways is filling up our baptistry. And back in the 90s, he was there in Israel in the Jordan River and got baptized and he took his water bottle out and filled it up with some, some water from the Jordan. And every time he fills this baptistry for us, he sprinkles some in. So it's just cool. It means nothing more. The water doesn't save us. We're gonna see that in a moment. But it's a beautiful just reminder of all of the, the history of all of God's redemptive work throughout the world being tied together and that we are saved just like those people putting our faith in the Lamb of God. So Jesus is, is there being baptized in the Jordan River. And it's at that moment the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, record um, that when Jesus is baptized, that this incredible moment happens that John is going to tell us about. But John doesn't really talk about the baptism. He talks about what happened that made it clear to John that Jesus is the one, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that Jesus is the one who is coming after him. John is going to say, I didn't know him, verse 31. He says, I didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Okay, John goes, I didn't even know who was coming, but God told me to go ready his people by doing this baptism with water so that they his people, Israel, would be able to receive their Savior. And John bore witness, and he said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Verse 33, again, he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, this is how you know, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He goes, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So what, what John is saying is, I was sent. I had a very clear mission from God. Go make ready the path for the coming Savior. So John is always saying, not, don't get excited about me. It's the one who's coming next. But John was given this gift through prophecy, right? Knowing the Isaiah passages we just read, knowing other passages, and God speaking to him directly saying, here's how you'll know who the Messiah is. I'm going to give you a sign, and you'll see the Spirit descending on him from heaven like a dove and remaining there. And that's how you'll know that this is whom I've been talking about. And so John says, I've seen that. It's him. Okay, so this is when he tells the crowd, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's him. This is John diverting his attention. John is fading into the background now. We're seeing chapter 3 that, that his disciples are going, hey, whoa, 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 John, you used to have a big church. Now they're all leaving to go to Jesus' church. What's up with that? And John goes, yeah, that was my whole point. 
My whole point was not to grow my church, but was to grow Jesus's. Not to grow my following, but to grow his. John is this bridge that connects the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's there to say, this is, the, everybody that's been saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. John is saying, here, with one foot in the Old Testament saying, he's here, and then one foot in the New Testament saying, that's him, right here. Y'all, y'all, no, not about me, him. And he, he diverts everyone's attention away, and he says, this is the one. And so, and, but John is, is saying, this is how I know. I saw this, this moment happening. But I think the reason that he he leaves out the baptism specifically because he really wants us to think about this juxtaposition or this contrast between the baptism of, of John saying, I came baptizing with water, verse 31, so that the true Savior might be revealed and then hold that up against the one who is going to do what? Baptize with the Holy Spirit. So in this, John makes a couple of particular points. First of which is that we see Jesus has the, the Spirit of God descend on him like a dove, not as a dove, but like a dove from heaven. And, and this tells us, we, we've, we, there's lots of prophecies in the Old Testament um, saying that the one who receives the Spirit will indeed be the Savior. So I think I've got just a few examples. I won't read them all to you, but Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, saying, There will come forth a stump from Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Okay, so this is prophecy saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is God looking at the sin problem of his world, saying, I'm going to send a solution. And you'll know the solution because the Spirit will rest on him. Verse, uh, chapter 42, verse 1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61.1. This is the, the passage that Jesus chooses to uh, read about himself in Luke chapter 4 to announce to the world that he's here. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So, he wants... John wants us to see, the writer John wants us to see, and the, the, John the baptizer wants us to see that this age of the Spirit is here, and the Messiah bearing the Spirit is here, right? And this is huge news for the people of God because this is the, the longing that they have been waiting for. This is the, the good news of, of God coming to be with his people. We know that in Jesus. He's Emmanuel, God dwelling with or tabernacling with his people, but then Jesus is going to live on earth for 33 or so years, do his ministry for three or so years, and at the end of his ministry, he starts to talk to his disciples about how it's actually, he's going to go, that he physically is going to leave. And, and he goes on to say, but it's actually good for you, because if I don't leave, I can't send the helper, but when I leave, I'm going to send to you the helper, which is what John will later call the Holy Spirit, which is what God has been promising for so long. If you think about, here's the, here's the thing about Christianity. Here's the problem that, that Christianity is solving for the world at large. I've said it several times already. The whole world is full of sin, and that's what keeps us from our true life, abundant life in God, because we were made for God. The Bible starts out, God created man in his image. There's fellowship there. There's beauty there. There's joy there. But then man sins, and we are separated from God. And all of us, from that moment on, are born into sin, and we're separated from God. But that's, we're all longing to get back to that thing. 
But we, we try it with different ways. We try it with our own sin, with relationships, with money, with pleasure, with all these things. And we can never regain what is put in us when God, his eternal presence, is there with us. That's why humanity is so confused. That's why humanity is longing for so much. You see it played out in the news. You see it played out, people inside of you. You've seen it played out in your own story. Looking, searching, trying, find, trying to find something that will fill what some would call this God-sized hole. It's, not, it's a good imagery to help, help you think about this longing that's within us. This is the big story of history. This is what's going on, right? But <clears throat> he says, all of this is moving toward, all right, Jesus is gonna restore and reconcile, okay? So all of that brokenness in the world is a result of our sin separating us from God. And all that God has been doing ever since has been moving toward his sinful people, pursuing his sinful people. Romans 3 says nobody's trying to get back to God. They're all try- we're all trying to get it from some other means, but God in his mercy is moving toward us. He's moving toward us. So this is, this is beautiful as you see it all tied together that God says, I'm going to send one who's going to solve all of this. I'm going to send one who will take away the sins of the world. But it's not just merely about forgiveness. It's not merely about getting rid of our sin and giving us a second chance or just giving us a pardon for all future. There's a purpose to that pardon. There's a purpose to our sin removal. God is eager to get back with his people. God is eager to once again be with his people. So it wasn't just the Spirit-anointed Messiah that they were waiting for, but we also see that it's the Spirit himself that we've been waiting for. We see in Joel chapter 2 that God promises this. This, again, prophecy years before Jesus, and he says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out what? My Spirit on all flesh. This is a a reuniting of God with people. He's saying, this is what I'm working toward. This is what the Messiah is going to accomplish. God and sinners reconciled. God and his people reconciled. Once again, together, Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This is God talking to his people saying, I will. One day I will. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You heard me um, saying to each of the the folks being baptized, if you made Jesus the Lord of your life, it means you'll do whatever he, he says, right? Go wherever he says to go. And some of you, you're hearing rules. You're hearing this, oh, okay, I gotta, I gotta do the religious thing. But, but here's what the Bible unpacks for us. He's saying before the law is out here, so that we understand we need a Savior. We have the Ten Commandments. We have the law of God. We have the Bible showing us, man, we don't measure up to God's righteousness. You don't think that's true? You think you're a pretty good person? Maybe you've been measuring your righteousness horizontally, looking at other people. You think, well, I'm not like them, right? God says, no, 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 you gotta measure it vertically against me. So just run through the Ten Commandments. You, you don't get past, thou shalt not lie, usually. Honor your father and mother, right? Don't bear false witness, don't covet. Don't, like, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, these are the things that God has put before us, and we realize, oh, we don't measure up. We don't measure up. But here's what he's saying. One day, in Ezekiel, he says, the law of God is gonna be no longer outside as this thing that reminds us of our need, but rather he's going to give us new hearts. He says, we got the law written on stones and our hearts are stones. But one day he comes and he says, I'm gonna take out your heart of stone and I'm gonna put in a heart of flesh. 
And that Ezekiel passage is saying that I'm going to write the law of God on your heart, and you're going to have this compulsion from the inside out to want to live for Jesus, to long to live for Jesus. And when you make him your Lord, you go, Jesus, I surrender to you. I give you my life. And this is what leads us to life. But this is the idea that God would be with his people once again. And so this is not just the spirit-anointed Savior that's coming, but rather the, the, the age of God pouring out his spirit. Okay, so I want you to see this. This is not just about a people that need somebody to forgive their sins, but rather a people who need to be restored to their God. And God has said, I will. One day, I will. And John is saying, he's here. John is saying, he is. This is what he's come to do. This is the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what Christianity is about. It's not just forgiving and tolerating you. He says, no, no, give me your sins, and I'm going to remove them as far as east is from the west. You say, yeah, but I still got this. No, he says, no, no, you're no longer in condemnation. You're no longer This is not come in here and see if you can live the good Christian life. This is come in here and give your filthy, sinful, selfish life. Give it to Jesus. And he goes, yeah, thank you. I got this. Removed. And he goes, here. Here's a new life. Here's a new record. It's all righteousness from here on out. You're mine. Your sins be as scarlet. I'll make them white as snow. The, 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 the part, that's part of what trips up these commentators because they're wondering, like, well, it's the Lamb of God, but, but it sounds like it's also the, the, the you know, the the goat that they would send out in expiation because on the Day of Atonement, they would lay hands on one animal and they would slaughter that animal so his, the sins would be forgiven. And then they would lay hands on a, another animal, confess those sins, and they would send that animal out of the camp so they would carry those sins away. So not just forgiven, but also removed. And so they're like, well, it's not this. It's probably Listen, John is saying, yes, Jesus is all of that. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is doing all of that. He is the propitiation and the expiation. He's fulfilling the wrath of God and taking our punishment and carrying away our sins. This is what he's come to do. So this is the reconciling of God to his people, and this is why, this is the difference between the baptism of water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is what John wants us to see. This is why he's drawing our attention there. So each time we have somebody come for baptism, we want to make it really clear that, hey, getting in that water does not save you. It doesn't justify you. It's not an actual cleansing that's happening by the water, but it is a physical, symbolic representation of what Jesus has done in us. Amen? That when we trust in Jesus, we are forgiven. Our sins are taken away. We die to our old self, and we're now living New life with Jesus. So it, it doesn't save us, but man, it's beautiful significance, isn't it? Because it's a public acknowledgement that, hey, I'm with Jesus now, and he's with me. But it's also this beautiful symbolic, like ours looks like a coffin on purpose, right? Because it's a symbolic, like we're dying to our old way of life, buried with Christ in baptism, right? Sins washed away. We're cleansed white as snow, and then we're raised to walk in new life. What is that new life? It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's an immersion with the Holy Spirit. And this is why we do believers' baptism, because we believe, like, after you're saved, then you get baptized to tell the world, and that there's not this secondary feeling, like, we are filled with the Spirit upon the moment that we trust Jesus as our Savior, that we are immersed in 
the Spirit. So I don't know if you noticed this particular detail about the, the, the Spirit of God <clears throat> descended. He, he who you see the Spirit of God descend and remain. Uh, we see that both in verse 32. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it did what? Somebody asked me the other day. They walked right up to me after church, and they were like, do you want the answers? It's like, uh, it's like a matrix moment. Like, I don't, I don't know, do I? And he was like, when you ask questions, do you want the answers? And I was like, he's like, you asked about this and asked about that. Or you want us to actually call him out? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I am. You can say it back to me. So when I say, and he said, and it, like a dove, it descended and it what? In verse 32, remained, okay? Now look, again here, it, it says it, this is, John is saying this is what happened, but he's also saying this is what he was told would happen. So verse 33, this, this is him recounting what God told him would happen. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and what? Remain. So what is that about? It's, it's important because it's not just God uh, tagging Jesus in, right? It's not just him coming down like a, like a dove and going, oh, that's my one, right? No, it descends and it remains on him. There's so much beauty to be unpacked here. This is why we're going slow through this book, because there's so much treasure here. Because in this, you're seeing, A, it stays on Jesus in a way that it's never stayed on anybody before. You see, the Lord has poured out his spirit before. You see him pouring out his spirit on Moses. You see him pouring out his spirit on guys like Samson and the different judges and the guys like David. He pours out his spirit even on Saul, but it never remains. You'll see these narratives that the spirit of the Lord left him, right? It's never this staying, but with Jesus, it remains. Why? Because there's no sin there. He never dishonors God to make the spirit have to leave. He never walks away from the will of God, so the spirit descends on him, and it stays there. This is not just affirming that Jesus is the Savior, but it's affirming that he is a worthy Savior, that he is the one who can retain the Spirit because there's no sin in him. So, as the one who retains the Spirit, as the one who receives the descending of the Spirit and it stays on him, now Jesus becomes the way that we all receive the Spirit. We get saved only through Jesus, not through our baptism, not through just you know receiving the Spirit. We have to go through Jesus, have our sins forgiven, but the good news doesn't end there that your sins are forgiven. The whole point in forgiving our sins was so that God could come and dwell with us. And this is why. This is a culmination of all that God is doing. You'll know that he's the Savior when the Spirit descends on him. And guess what? When that Messiah comes, the age of reunification, the age of God with man is, is started. It's begun. And now sins are forgiven. Sinners are made clean. And guess what? When we are forgiven, when we're made clean, now the barrier that kept us from God, that was sin, it's gone. If we've trusted in Jesus as our Savior, you've repented of your sins and say, Jesus, you're my Lord and you're my Savior. I need you to forgive me and I want to make you the Lord of my life. Then in that moment, you're washed clean, but in that moment, you're also indwelled with the Holy Spirit, that God comes to live within you, that God comes to take over your life, to give you new life. And guess what? 
He's not just there to see if you can handle it. He's not just there to see if you can try harder, do better, and not mess this thing up so bad. No, he's there to continue to bring new life. He's there to continue to draw out his image in you, to convict of sin, and to lead toward righteousness. So we got seven, eight-year-olds, young kiddos in this baptism waters with a pretty innocent idea of what their sin is. But we're already talking to them about dying to their self and trusting in Jesus for new life. She, little Cora was already talking about making much of Jesus and making sure the world knows about Jesus, right? And, and so we have this, this moment of surrender. And it's not just about being forgiven so that, my goodness, so that you can just go about your life and not worry about your sin anymore. If that's you, if you prayed a prayer back years ago and you just feel like you're entitled to do whatever you want because you can look back and say, well, I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I know I'm not perfect, but nobody is. I got Jesus. If that's you, if you've had no compulsion to live like Jesus, no compulsion to honor Jesus and and to give him the rest of your life, then I would say you don't have Jesus. You've got some other form of religion, some other form of of giving a pass, but when you get Jesus, it changes everything because he is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Does that mean we won't sin anymore? Does that mean we will be perfect? No. But when we do, we'll have conviction. Why? Because we have the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us, and he doesn't allow our sin to just sit with us and love it anymore. Instead, he says, that's got to go. Why? Because you're mine, and we're going to get more of Jesus and less of you, and we get more life and less of sin, more life, less of death. So some of you are here, you're wondering if you can do it, if you can be a Christian here, let me tell you, you can't, but he can. He can save you, and he can keep you, and he can make you new. Will you surrender to that today? Will you trust him today? I told you earlier, the water's still warm. You can come and be baptized today. You can come and receive this good news of the Lamb of God taking away our sins of our world. This is good news, church. Jesus has come to baptize the Holy Spirit. Some of you have been saved, and there's a legitimate salvation, and you know there's a presence of the Holy Spirit because you are convicted of sin, but we don't know quite what to do with that. Well, Here's the deal. It doesn't say that you just get a little bit of the Holy Spirit. The word there is baptize. The word there is immerse, to put in. To, to dunk, be surrounded by. That's what he says is true of you. If you've been forgiven of your sins by Jesus, you are now immersed, surrounded, baptized in the Holy Spirit. That means you've got the same resurrection power living in you that raised Jesus from the dead. Are you, are you living through that? Are you letting him have your addiction or are you just fighting your battles on your own, feeling like you're not good enough, feeling like you could never tell anybody, feeling like whatever? Are you just stuck in your addiction? Are you stuck in a place where you can't talk to your husband, you can't talk to your wife, you can't tell anybody because you, you, don't, you don't want anybody to think that you're not this? Jesus says, I already know you're not this, but I am this and I'm giving you my righteousness. Just give me your sin. Let's, let's continue to bring about salvation. Let's continue to bring about new life. Will you trust him today? Maybe for the first time, come be baptized. Will you trust him today? Maybe for like the first time in a long time, you're honest with Jesus about who you really are and what you're really struggling with. And you let him take it back. 
and take it away. And you just fall into his arms and you let him love you as a savior who gave himself for you. Will you trust Jesus today? Chad will be over here. I'll be over there. We'll baptize you. We'll have a conversation first. Man, we'd love to baptize you today. We got towels. We got some clothes. We'll figure it out. Today's the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, we need you uh, to take the scales off of our eyes so that we see you for the fullness of who you are. Come, move in our midst. Stir us today. It's in your holy, awesome name we pray, Jesus. Amen.